Welcome to our podcast. I'm Rory McCleary, Director of the Marion Consort. Today's podcast takes a slightly different format. Rather than looking in depth at one particular area of the repertoire, instead, I'm going to be introducing to you James, our fantastic general manager, and talking a little bit about some of the exciting projects that we have coming up in the next few months. Hi, Rory. Great to be here and good to finally get my voice on the podcast that I've been busily editing for the last few months. I think you have made a guest appearance in the past, haven't you? But people might not know that. Yeah, there was one historical quote that I voiced in our last episode about Jean Maillard to add a little texture. Anyway, wonderful to be able to chat to you today. Um, And really, we're talking about our digital projects, because of course, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, all of our performing work for the last six months really has been cancelled and so we've been hard at work developing some alternative performance projects really um a lot of which has been uh, really masterminded by you yes i mean it's been a, a really kind of challenging but exciting few months to uh basically turn around our entire model of activity you know and we're now more akin to a film production company than we are a performing vocal ensemble which has been really exciting but difficult work but yeah we you know we were very lucky to get some uh, funding from the Arts Council to do these projects. Um, and it's meant that we've been able to give our freelance singers work whilst live opportunities remain impossible. And also put together what I think will be some really exciting programs for online, uh, which are kind of very outward looking in their scope and range and involving lots of collaborators and, and new art forms that we haven't really worked with before. So it's been a really exciting couple of months working on these and thrilled to have the first one out next week. I, th- I think for me, actually, one of the most exciting things has been the fact that although we've been really cut off for such a long time from each other and from our audience in a kind of physical way, these projects have allowed us to do some really interesting and fantastic collaborations with people all over the world. Um, and also people that we might not in the ordinary course of events have had the, the chance to work with. So that has been really exciting. I guess before we jump into the specifics of all of these projects, it might be nice just to get a little bit of your background, I suppose, James. Um, so just um, if I may, I might ask you a couple of questions just to to fill in our listeners about um, about you and about how you came to the Marion Consort um, and about um, what drew you to this particular area of music. So I've known James for a very long time um, because you were a chorister at St Mary's Cathedral in Edinburgh, were you not? I was indeed. I think I was about eight or nine years below you. So I'm feeling very old now. <laughs> possibly um, past each other in the cathedral over, you know, at Christmas and Easter. Um, but yes, I had a very rich musical education at the cathedral uh, singing almost every day for five years, going on tour, doing broadcasts and recordings. Uh, and, it, and it gives you an incredible sense of discipline and professionalism. You, know, you start the day off at 8am with an hour's rehearsal and you finish the day at 6.15 having sung Evensong. And you emerge with this bug for singing and for vocal music that stays with you the rest of your life. That's an interesting one because... I think that, it, yes, it can go one of two ways. Um, for some people, I think that uh, all of that exposure um, is enough to put them off for life. Um, but you're right, for a majority, it really does. Uh, so, so you think that's where 
really you kind of you got the bug for um well i guess for for vocal music for choral music but i guess also for early music because there was a lot of that in the repertoire actually the thing that really ignited me was um my bug for playing the organ um because i loved singing but actually all i really wanted to do was to be playing the organ uh, and basically as soon as i arrived at the cathedral I said to my mum, I want to learn that, pointing up at this enormous Father Willis organ, uh, which seemed kind of out of bounds at the time. And, you know, the organists were always kind of behind in the shadows, uh, but it just was so kind of enchanting to me. So after a few years, once my voice had broken, I started learning the organ with a Master of Music and then carried on throughout school and then was lucky to get an organ scholarship to study at university. But as you say, you know, I've, I've it kind of ignited that passion for early music and for vocal music that propelled me through my education and career to date and then you know when I was at university again I had this fantastic opportunity leading the chapel choir to continue performing this stuff and to put on a festival which is when we then reconnected uh, when I then booked the Marian consort to come and perform at Keeble Early Music Festival. I was going to mention the the festival at Keeble because of course that I think brought together both your your interest in this music but also your kind of entrepreneurial spirit and you know and harnessed your your talent for making things happen I guess and bringing things together behind the scenes bringing together different performers having these fantastic ideas about what might work and you know really interesting collaborations and all that kind of stuff it was very much an experiment to start with you know it was it was typical for the organ scholars to kind of put on a concert series and I really wanted to put on some of this slightly unknown 17th and 18th century stuff you know a student group singing bawdy catches in the bar with you know various fellows looking on quite uh, disapprovingly of the tawdriness of some of the the songs uh, and then we had people like Mahanes Fahani come and play Goldberg Variations and we had um, Boyan Chichich do Unaccompanied Bach so it was, it was a real range but alongside all these concerts were opportunities for students and for young people in Oxfordshire to come and learn and perform alongside professional groups. Um, and I remember you did a fantastic Speminalium with uh, assorted singers from across uh, Oxford. Yeah, that was wonderful, actually, because it really brought together not only the, the Keeble Choir, but also the kind of the wider Oxford musical community. Because, of course, Spem, even when you've got kind of, you know, uh, an octet of professional singers and, and then a whole chapel choir, you still need a few extras to plug the gaps. Um, and I remember that being a, an amazing event because it was this sort of host of luminaries um, who'd come in, sort of all these all-stars of the, the early music world of years past, people like Sally Dunkley and Rogers Covey Crump, um, and then just having Sophie Bevan singing kind of soprano choir six, um, very unassumingly. That was wonderful. I was thinking about the programs that we did at Keyboard. I think the, the reason it's hard to remember is because I think we had been there three times, actually. I think the first time doing a program of Spanish Renaissance music, wonderful um, Iberian Renaissance music, and the second time doing um, a program of Gesualdo and Cipriano de Rore, really, really fascinating stuff. But again, it's one of the wonderful things is that, you know, under your stewardship, some really interesting programs of music that wouldn't otherwise, you know, necessarily be thought to have mass appeal, but which always attracted good audiences. And you've now been with, with us at the Marion Consort for, oh, it's been a year and a half, I think. And in that time, the, the group, certainly our kind of our infrastructure and our operational side of things, which may sound a little bit dry and is something that people a lot of the time aren't necessarily aware of, because what they see is our kind of, you know, forward facing, our public facing activity, which is our concerts, our recordings. But there's all of that stuff, which is so important and goes on behind the scenes. But there's been so many, um, you know, big changes, really transformative changes in that time. We've become a charity 
with a fantastic board of trustees and that's really thanks to all of your hard work putting that all together and we have begun this incredible digital series and i can't say the word digital we've begun this incredible digital series and we've also partnered with um and begun planning projects with a really interesting array of people for live performances some of which are slightly on the back burner at the moment but we're hoping um are going to be reorganized for 2021 and 2022 and um, so more on that in a little bit i think but yeah how have you found it then in the in the last year and a half really really thrilling you know i'm i'm very lucky to to be working with a group that's so kind of open-minded and ambitious as the Marion Consort is. Just before you invited me to come on board, I saw you perform down in the bascule chambers of Tower Bridge and you collaborated with a spoken word poet and, you know, you did Talis Loquibantor around this stairwell. And, you know, I thought it was absolutely brilliant and, you know, exactly the kind of work that, that groups should be doing, putting putting this music in new places and strange places. And, and that's exactly the kind of ethos that, you know, we're continuing to cultivate going forward. And of course, you know, the expansion of the organization, the fact that we've got some very supportive trustees and a bit more sort of resource behind us now is really, really exciting for me. And yes, I think that um, Bascule Chamber series of performances was one of the stranger places that we've ever sung but not perhaps the strangest but as you say wonderful to bring this music to to different um different locales and to bring it out of its kind of you know that assumed context of a church or a concert hall and um, yes thinking about other strange places we've performed, i think we're possibly one of the only um vocal groups performing renaissance music that have ever appeared in ibiza um alongside obviously kind of you know um pete song and ministry of sound and you know <laughs> I guess it would be a good thing now to uh, just delve a little bit more into these digital projects, um, the first of which, well, I say the first of which, but actually we've already released some very exciting things, but um, the first of which is, is coming up next week. There are various different strands, of course, but perhaps you could just talk us through uh, the, the different parts of, of what we've got coming out. Absolutely. Well, the headline feature of our digital season uh, is six 50-minute programs which are centered around vocal music but draw on lots of other disciplines and sets of expertise. Our first project, which is called Birdsong, centers around William Bird's Mass for Three Voices and some of his motets for three voices. Now, this was the first program that we got together to rehearse and perform out of lockdown. And we started very small, so just three voices spaced out, just to kind of see what it felt like performing again. And so we filmed this program up in, in Gateston Hall in Essex, which is where William Byrd used to gather uh, back in the 1590s to hold clandestine Catholic celebrations. And he wrote much of his Latin texted music for celebrations um, at this house. And we spent a day there in the, in the Stone Hall recording. Uh, and we had a look around the grounds and saw a couple of priest holes as well, which was really fascinating. Yeah, for, for me, it really helped to to contextualize in a very kind of direct and meaningful way that music, because of course, we, we know and we read about Bird and John Peter, his patron and Lingston Hall and performances that took place there. But actually going to the house, which is still amazingly still standing and performing the music in that space really was was incredible. And as you say, yes, a sort of a virtue of a necessity, the three part mass, because coming out of lockdown, we thought baby steps would be a good idea. And um, that I think, allowed us to, to make sure that all of the social distancing 
both in rehearsal and performance was was being observed and following following all these guidelines to keep everybody safe. Um, lots of hand washing. I'm amazed that my hands are still intact after the amount of hand washing and hand gel that we've had on. But um, but really fantastic to bring that music home, essentially, really. Yes, and and also to the the natural habitat of the nightingale. Now, of course, William Bird was described during his lifetime as uh, a nightingale to our people. Nightingales flood to Essex and the the east of England from April to June. Um, And so we've kind of built around this focus on birds, a a world of of bird song and bird-inspired art. So we've got um, poems by Roger Robinson, by Claude Mackay, Gerard Manley Hopkins, and also a poem by William Bird, uh, which I didn't know about before. And then kind of drawing on this theme, we've also got Sean Sheba, the fantastic young Scottish guitarist who's playing some Tudor works. So we've got Green Sleeves and The Woods So Wild and The Fall of the Leaf. And, you know, this is all kind of against this incredible natural backdrop of, of Essex and musical accompaniment to the countryside of, of birdsong. And there's a lovely sense in which the works that Sean's playing are part of a kind of an evolving repertoire, really, a a kind of a a continual transformation, because, of course, these are keyboard pieces that were arranged in the late 16th, early 17th century by Francis Cutting, a noted British lutenist, uh, and that then Sean has, I think, rearranged um, to bring them into his um, very contemporary guitar repertoire, which is fantastic. Yeah, and I think, you know, it it speaks to, you know, what we're trying to do is cast fresh light on a lot of this early music and, and, you know, really kind of put it up against these different uh, artistic forms. It's really interesting, one of the poems that we have read um, by Claude Mackay, who was a major figure in the Harlem Renaissance, um, he travelled around a lot of Europe and then actually converted to Catholicism later in his life. But he was always drawn to these very early forms. He wrote a lot of sonnets, which was, of course, not really the done thing in the early 20th century in, uh, in Harlem. And he was he had this fixation with these with these old forms, and I think the way we perform our music and the way that Sean performs, you know, early music and Tudor music and, and even Bach, um, there's a real freshness to it, and and I think that's a really interesting parallel. And also this, you know, much more contemporary poem by Roger Robinson, um, who's a recent T. S. Eliot Prize winner and and writes. Um, more sort of uh, dub poetry. There's a real, uh, real freshness and kind of directness to his text that is is not dissimilar to a lot of a lot of birds. Like this three part thing is very direct because he was performing under these circumstances in which he could be caught at any moment. I mean, I know that you uh, will outline elsewhere in our digital series. You know the necessity for Bird to be concise with his text setting. Yes, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting the parallels that you draw between them. And because both of those art forms, I guess, were in some way contentious or even dangerous for their creators. And so, yes, this kind of necessary brevity, which formed a part of them. I think with the three-part works as well, as this you know, worry that actually they might be discovered in the midst of a, a Catholic mass by these government priest hunters. I mean, it sounds like some kind of um, Netflix show that's going to be commissioned, doesn't it? Priest hunters. But they were a real thing. Um, and it was a, a very real danger. Like I said, brought home by this visit to Ingerston and seeing these priest holes, these amazing compartments or kind of r- whole rooms, in fact, 
in the house disguised, you know, in the paneling of the walls so that they were invisible to, to the casual observer. Absolutely amazing. But yes, I think also Bird's concision with the three-part writing is partly because this is a, a really kind of stripped down form. It's really interesting because it's Bird at his most um, economical, really, because he's writing in the 1590s and the early 1600s, so at the end of his career, and he has experimented all the way through with these different forms. And he's really found this style, which is becoming a little bit old fashioned um, in terms of kind of the general progression of, of music taste and, and style in, in that genre of music and sacred music. But he's really kind of taking it to its absolute end, its kind of apogee. Um, and it's really interesting because, yeah, there's no room to hide in these three-part works every note has to count everything has to be there it has to has to really matter and make a difference um and in that way um bird creates this music which i guess the best way to describe it is incredibly well crafted um there's real craftsmanship about it uh, which makes it really exciting to sing um and i think really wonderful to listen to as well it bears repeated listening because every time you do you notice something you didn't hear before um, and there are also these little musical traces, these little fingerprints between the different works, which you'll hear these little cadential progressions or little melodic patterns, which come back every so often, a bit like, I suppose, the Nightingale's song, you know, which is so varied, but you always hear these little distinctive markers, these melodic markers, which come back. The Bird Mass for Three Voices, sung by just three voices, is such a exposed, demanding listening exercise. And having not sung for three months, that must have been hard work to get your ear back in and, you know, to really tune into just those two people around you singing. Yes. I mean, yes, it's sort of on the day um, I was for a few moments thinking, actually, you know, why have we done this? You know, after having not really sung, all all three of us were talking about this in the rehearsals, having not really sung, we're thinking, why did we do something with... 15 singers you know where you can kind of hide in hide in the texture you can just disappear a little bit but actually I think once we found it it was just so exciting to be doing that once again but you're right it's it's very much a high wire act I mean a lot of what we do with the Marion Consort is like that anyway because we're performing this music that people know very well chorally uh, but performing it with one voice uh, to a part and it's amazing the difference it makes even two voices on a part um, in terms of allowing you just to hide, actually, a little bit the infelicities of tuning or of timing or of different vowel colours and these kinds of things, which as soon as you have more than one voice um, singing a line together, actually the kind of the accumulation of that, the sort of um, the averaging of that means that um, they become much less noticeable and you get that kind of sort of general seraphic choral wash that people um, often associate with some parts of this Renaissance repertoire. But it makes it so much easier um, in terms of the tuning and the blend and having a conductor, of course, for all of our smaller scale projects, we perform unconducted, I direct, but from inside the group. And so in a way, yes, we we make life as difficult as possible for ourselves um, because we take away the security of the conductor and of having somebody else on your line. But I think what you get in return is this incredibly exciting sense as a singer but also I think for for listeners you get this real sense of the voices working together but also you can hear the individual colors of the singer's voices which I think is so important and exciting and certainly for this repertoire it makes total sense because it's almost certain that it would have been performed for obvious reasons of kind of necessity by very small groups um, 
either of singers or possibly of singers and instrumentalists. Um, we know that some performances had instrumentalists involved as well, but w- would have been performed by very small forces in this kind of clandestine setting, very much like we did in Ingotston Hall. Although thankfully, yes, we weren't at risk of being discovered and carted off to the Tower of London. So James, we've talked about Bird, but what else do we have coming up in the, the digital concert series? So our second programme, which is called Cult, is all about our namesake, the Virgin Mary, and the cult that emerged around her from the sort of 13th century. So we're looking at music by Clemens Nonpapa, by Orlando Lassus, and by Raffaella Aliotti, who was a, a composer in a um, convent in Italy. And we're looking at how these uh, texts about Mary emerged, um, the, the role of Mary as both mother wife, lover, uh, bride of Jesus, and the the really interesting kind of questions about authorship, um, about first person narrative from from Mary, and how these how how the, the real kind of distance emerged between the Virgin Mary and all other women. And there'll be a much more in depth podcast about this in August. And so we've we've spoken to uh, Marina Warner, who who's written many 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 books. One of them uh, called "Alone of All Her Sex: The Cult of the Virgin Mary," and it examines the emergence of this othering of Mary, how she was put on a pedestal. We've also got a wonderful actor El Potter reading some texts um, by Renaissance poets, including Amelia Lanier, who wrote an amazing poem from the perspective of the women in the Bible, including Eve, Mary, and the wife of Pontius Pilate. Uh, and there's also going to be a couple of texts by Chiara Matriini and Tullia D'Aragona. So again, drawing on quite a wide range of voices and voices that often are not heard. I th- think for me, what's really interesting about, well, this repertoire that we perform is that very seldom do we really think about the fact that although the Virgin Mary certainly, and, you know, um, these kind of female subjects, um, female saints, uh, and particularly yes, Mary, are ubiquitous almost. I mean, one of the reasons we're called the, the Marian Consort is because there's just so much music from this period and all the way through actually the Baroque classical period, all of this sacred music dedicated to the Virgin Mary. But actually, real women are notable by their absence because we know about um, women performing in secular contexts in the Renaissance, and this was kind of to a certain extent codified and you have things like the um the Duedone in Ferrara um Ferrara being a particularly it seems forward looking and enlightened place in some ways in terms of music performance but certainly in a sacred space women really are confined to the convent um that was the only place that they could make music liturgically and Raffaella Aliotti as you mentioned um was very much one of those women um although she I think is particularly notable because she's the first woman to have a collection of sacred music published in 1593 um, and we'll be examining that of course but yeah it's really interesting to reflect on that fact that you know women are everywhere in this music when you think about the, the subject matter of the text it's all about the Virgin Mary in, in one form or another but then actually women's voices are largely absent and of course there's still this debate about um, you know whether women should be I mean I think it's completely crazy but um because of course they should, but you know, women performing this music and you know always being compared to the sounds of boy trebles, you know, and people searching after that sort of perceived purity of sound, which I think is a little bit of a sort of a misnomer anyway. But um, and I think we we had a really interesting 
conversation about all of that in our podcast with with Marina. Um, so it's going to be fantastic to uh, to bring that all together, as you say. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about our third project? Absolutely, yes. So the third one is a programme really which centres around music in the Sistine Chapel and particularly this incredibly well-known work, Allegri's Miserere, but of course well-known in a form which would have been completely unknown to Allegri himself because through various changes, accidental and deliberate and kind of borderlizations really, um, it's been transformed from the 17th century to the 21st and the version that we know today is almost unrecognisable from the version which is transmitted in the Sistine Chapel manuscripts. Besides this, we bring together works by Palestrina, including his Sicut Cervus, I can't say that because of my weird accent, including his Sicut Cervus and his Missa Brevis, both quite well-known pieces, but both absolutely fantastic examples of the Palestrina style. Palestrina is most engaging and absorbing, again, a bit like the later works by Bird, not a spare note, nothing out of place, nothing that you would want to add or remove. It's just this perfect product of polyphonic writing, really. It's polyphonic writing reaching its absolute zenith at this stage in the 16th century, at around the same time, of course, as Bird is writing. Um, and alongside them, we have other works by Allegri. Um, he wasn't just a, a one-trick pony. Um, there are some fantastic lamentations by Allegri, which we include in this program, um, and also a motet by Anerio, who was Palestrina's successor as composer to the Sistine Chapel. So a really exciting program. And alongside that, we'll also be piecing together the various versions of Allegri's Miserere that have existed over the centuries, you know, through various copyists' mistakes and reinterpretations and improvisations. So we'll be kind of tracking how we've arrived at this version that is now so popular. Yes, a, f- a fantastic journey through time um, with a, a very able guide, Ben Byron Wigfield, who is um, something of an Allegri expert. Um, and he'll be showing us exactly how this piece has changed and transformed. And that, so that's our first three major, major programmes. Uh, We'll be announcing a further three in autumn at some point. But alongside these major headline programs, we're also going to be doing more podcasts like this, hopefully with a slightly more exciting guest than just the general manager. It would be more exciting, Uh, James, than being joined by you. But we're with with academics and uh, writers. Uh, And we've also released the first uh, of our series of visual arts commissions. Now, this is a project that we've been thinking about doing for a while, but lockdown seemed to be the perfect opportunity. Uh, We wanted to commission works that would would stand the test of time. So we'd look back on them in five years time and think that was an interesting and valuable response to our current circumstances. So we've commissioned a few artists. The first uh, comes from a Rwandan uh, filmmaker called Kivu Ruhora Hosa. Um, who's uh, had work shown at uh, Sundance Festival, Tribeca, Warsaw Film Festival, Rio, Sydney, the list goes on. Uh, and he's worked with many, many artists around the world, uh, like Oliver Eliasson at Tate uh, and at MoMA in America. Um, and Kivu has made a really, really beautiful, almost sort of visual poem uh, on this piece by Jean Maillard, which is all about loneliness and desolation and experiencing isolation from those who were your friends. Yes, it, could, it couldn't be more appropriate for lockdown in a way. It's very prescient of Jean Maillard to write this setting. Yes, all my brothers have been distanced from me and everybody is isolated from me. Yeah, this incredibly moving piece of music, I think. And yeah, it's amazing the way that Kiva has responded to it. And our next, which will be arriving in a couple of weeks' time, uh, is from a... Uh, 
image maker called Luca Shaw, who's based in Stockport. And Luca works across print, uh, illustration, set design, and animation. And she is responding to a work by Gesualdo. And this kind of links up with our program looking at um, the cult of the Virgin Mary. She is responding to a piece called Ave Regina Cholorum, Hail Queen of Heaven. And she's looking at how Mary is kind of esteemed so highly. Um, you know, the comparison of uh, her body to nature. A lot of Luca's work is kind of looking at the body and, and women's bodies. And so this is a really fascinating uh, pairing, I think. A lot of Luca's work looks at the body in kind of patriarchal society. And of course, Gesualdo in many ways represents the absolute worst of patriarchal society. Having been a very privileged prince of Venosa, uh, who then murdered his his wife and her lover and got away scot-free. Yes, and of course it's interesting because not only, yes, as, as you say, Gesualdo absolutely kind of um, ex- exemplary of the, the worst of patriarchal society in the late Renaissance, um, but also the function that these Marian texts play for him, the function that they have, is really that of Mary as intercessor, because this collection of motets is either him worrying about the fact that he's going to hell for what he's done. He wasn't so worried about being punished um, in his own lifetime, but worrying about going to hell. So there's lots of penitential texts or Marian texts with Mary always framed as this intercessor, this person who could help save souls by intervening on the behalf of us mortals, and in, in this case, specifically Gesualdo. And there's this amazing painting in the um, chapel in Gesualdo of Carlo Gesualdo, the composer, kneeling at the feet of Mary, looking up in supplication while she's having a chat with God and Jesus, presumably to say, don't worry, he's not all bad, when of course he really was. James, fantastic to chat. Thank you so much for giving us all this insight into what's coming up in the next couple of weeks. And you can check all of this out on our website, on our new Watch, Read, Listen section. You can find out more on our social media. You can follow us at at Marion Consort on Twitter, on Facebook and on Instagram. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>